Good evening. I'm Nancy Nangeroni. I'm Gordine McKenzie. And this is Gender Talk. Again, this is Gender Talk Worldwide Radio that talks about transgenderism in the first person. Each week we bring you news, information, and exciting new voices that challenge our traditional view of gender and much more. Tonight we're going to talk about two issues of great importance to the transgender community. First, it's used by murderers of trans persons to justify their hideous actions. But is it finally going the way of the dodo? Law clerk and legal activist Victoria Steinberg will bring us the latest on the trans panic defense. Then, is it becoming less safe to be transgender or transsexual? Director of the National Center for Transgender Equality, Mara Kiesling, will fill us in on the disappearance of the stealth option. And because there's simply no finer option available to us, we'll also have the Twisted Nasty News, Raving Raven, Gender News, Question of the Week, Evelyn's Diary, and much more tonight on Gender Talk. Hello, everybody. It's another Saturday night. It's WMBR in Cambridge, which means it's time for Gender Talk. I am your host, Nancy, and also hosting... Gordine McKenzie. And we are your crew for the night so far. Uh, Wait a minute, Nancy. Oh, that's right. We've got that other that other crew member. Hey, Nancy. Yeah, what is it? What did you mean it went the way of the dodo? <laughs> well, the dodo's extinct. Sad thing, huh? It is a sad thing, but it won't be a sad thing if the, when the trans panic defense goes the way it goes the same direction. Yeah. The trans panic defense, of course, is um, when somebody murders a trans person and claims that it was because oh they this I thought it was a woman and it turned out it it it, it, it turned out that this person uh, had male genitalia and I was so freaked out I just had to kill them on the spot. And it, what it does is it convinces juries to give a lesser penalty. They they plead down usually to a manslaughter typically when you, you do something like that. And that means then the person spends less time in prison. In the case of um, Chanel Pickett's murderer, William Palmer, in fact, he managed to get off with assault and battery. That's right. After strangling this girl in his bedroom, strangled her to death and beat her about the uh, face so badly, she was beaten so badly that the judge refused to let the jury see photos of her because she, she had been beaten so badly she was af- he was afraid it would prejudice the jury against the defendant. Mm. So any anyway, so the transpanic defense has certainly been used in some uh, questionable And it was it was ways. used in the uh Guanarahu case. There there were two uh, defendants that did plea down to manslaughter and most recently in the uh, Jose or Joel uh, Robles case, it was also used successfully, even though uh, Robles was stabbed with the scissors. The person that did it got off with three years for manslaughter. And what, what one case year, this? Yeah, Robles, this happened right after Gwen Arahu. Oh, was it? Was it, where was it? It was in California, it was and also I, in California. I believe it happened in 2004. I'll, I'll check well, I, on I, that. I, I imagine we'll be talking about that some more tonight with our guest. Probably right? so. Who's going to be Victoria Steinberg? And how did you how did you uh, come across Victoria? 
Well, I was doing some research for an article that, that I was writing on uh, murdered transgender women of color, and I ran across uh, an article that was wonderful called A Heat of Passion Offense, Emotions and Bias in Trans Panic Mitigation Claims. And what it is, is it's a book review of a book that looks at the heat of passion defense, but doesn't really talk about trans panic. And Steinberg then talks about trans panic, puts it in the context of heat of passion, uh, places it historically, and uh, makes a very convincing argument. It's a, I, I think it's one of the most brilliant articles that I've uh, run across. Terrific. So she should. she's certainly a well-informed and should be a fascinating guest, it sounds like. And has done a lot of social justice work around uh, areas of uh, domestic violence and uh, other, other violence issues as well and women's issues. Well, wonderful. Well, that should be great then. And then uh, our second guest will be... Mara Keisling. And we're going to be talking with her about the disappearance of stealth. Yeah. Now, stealth is when... Someone transitions, changes their gender, and so someone who was born ostensibly male and lived as male, um, or they might have been born female but were surgically mutilated, or might have been born male but were surgically mutilated to make them female at birth, which sometimes happens, like a botched circumcision um, or whatever, um, when someone is living in one gender anyway and decides to transition to the other gender, then... Um, in the early days, when this first happened in the 60s and 70s, they were usually counseled to, to go stealth. And so, and so stealth was, that was basically... traditional wisdom. You would create a whole new life where there was nobody in your life who knew you from, from your past life. Now, these days, it's actually possible to be stealth without being hidden from everybody. In other words, you can still have your family know who you are and know the truth about you, but you can be stealth at work and in other ways in your life. So stealth is not necessarily this all-encompassing thing. We'll be talking more about this later. But the question is now, is that option disappearing for trans people? And if so, why and how? So very interesting. And, and Mara is going to take us into the Real ID Act and how that, that may be one of the linchpins of uh, disappearance. That Real ID Act being um, the way that that's going to go, huh? I mean, the thing that's going to cause that. That Certainly, certainly that it'll make it possible because of the way that all your documents are tracked down, that, for example, if your school records are in one sex and your Social Security is in another sex or your passport is in another sex and your employer has access to all of this, and if you're stealth, what happens? So the Real ID Act is just going to reveal inconsistencies in your yep. documentation, so we'll be talking about that. So that's an issue of concern. Uh, and it, it's interesting. Um, yeah, looking forward to talking about that one. Uh, let's see. It's Labor Day. Oh, first of all, we should explain uh, Mark Weaver is uh, meeting his dad at the airport tonight. That's right. <laughs> his dad's <laughs> flying into town, and Mark's meeting him at the airport and is going to take him home to Rhode Island. So Mark, we're without Mark tonight. And Hal Fuller um, has tried to call in. We're trying to get Hal on the phone. He's tried to call in several times, but we haven't been able to get a hold of him. I think we might try one more time. We might try uh, placing sure. a call, see if we can get Hal on the phone. Um because we certainly would like to have the twist. Right, Hal, if news. you hear us, give it a try again. Yeah, try us again, Hal, if, if you hear us, and, and, and make sure that mute button on your phone isn't pressed um, so that we can hear you, too. But uh, uh, So hopefully we'll have Twisted Nasty News tonight. We'll see. And Gordine actually is going to go take care of that right now. While she's going, I want to talk with you all about Labor Day, because it's Labor Day weekend, 
And Labor Day um, is a time, it, it's, of course, we all look forward to it as a vacation, which it certainly is. It's a, a day off, an extra day off that we can all use. Um, there was an interesting uh, editorial today in the Boston Globe by a fellow named Robert Kuttner. Robert is, uh, let's see, does it say what he is? No, it doesn't say that here. Well, anyway, uh, he talks about he, he talks about the origin of Labor Day. Labor Day was created, and I'm, I'm going to read from this just a little bit, um, not too much, I promise. Labor Day was created by the Machinists Union in New York in 1882 as a working men's holiday. Unions all over America adopted the idea. By 1894, Congress passed legislation making Labor Day an official holiday. The day also celebrated the act. Get this, the act of organizing politically and in the workplace to improve livelihoods and lives. And, of course, that's what's significant here. And, and, and um, um, he goes on to talk about some statistics that I'll bring in. But what's interesting here is the idea of labor organizing. This is something um, antithetical to the Bush administration, the Bush, uh, and the Re- Republican Party has been uh, working very hard to undermine the power of unions, um, starting with Ronald Reagan, who uh, who really cut the legs out from under unions by, uh, oh, by um, uh, when the uh, air traffic controllers went out on strike, and he basically fired them all, and they were all replaced, and that really undermined uh, the power of unions. Um, and... Uh, uh, that that undermining of union power has continued under the Bush administration. And uh, let's see. Let me read to you some of these statistics. Government statistics now show that the typical family works about 500 hours more a year than they did 30 years ago. The typical family, and this is... Uh, because it takes two incomes now in order to survive. You can no longer survive on one income. Um, and sometimes you can't even survive on two. That's right. Now, now why is this? Uh, the Census Bureau reported that median incomes for working-age families are down again for the fifth straight year, even though the economy has grown every year. Why is that? Because all of the gain in this economy. When Bush says the economy is gaining, what's happening is working class people, everyone from middle class on down, are losing money, losing income, but the people on top, the richest 1%, are gaining. And so, uh, uh, for example, the Globe recently reported that chief executives of nonprofit hospitals now routinely make more than $1 million a year. Chief executives of nonprofit hospitals, $1 million a year. I guess it's you know, you just have so many expenses. The, the uh, let's see, in the Economic Policy Institute uh, released an annual report, the State of Working America, and among its findings, the economy's productivity increased by a remarkable 33.5 percent between 1995 and 2005, increased by one third our productivity, and yet real wages have declined since 2000. And I'm glad you made that point that so people all of are that working gain, more. All of that gain has gone into the pockets of the richest 1%. So on this Labor Day weekend, let's think about uh, what we can do to change that, to reverse that tide, because it certainly has been a tide. It's a tide that's flowing against us, and uh, it's just a, a, an unconscionable uh, Direction that things have taken. Now, speaking of unconscionable directions, let me see if I can bring Hal Fuller up. Hal, are you there? Oh, what have I done wrong? Uh, oh, there we go. Hal, are you there now? 
Hal? Try now. Oh, he's there now. Hello. Hi, there Hal. There you are, Hal. How are you doing? Hello. Hi. I don't know. How am I doing? How, how <laughs> nice to hear your voice. Through the wizardry of the board, you are there. Makes you appreciate the talents of a good engineer, huh? Mark, come back. <laughs> well, I don't know what was going on with you before. The times when you were calling in, that had nothing to do with engineering. I kept picking up the phone, and you just weren't there. Uh, so I don't know what that was. Uh, it, it, it's a dance we've done. Okay, but yeah. I'm here now. Because I wasn't even on the board. We were just picking you up on the phone. But then getting you on the board here, that's all my fault. <laughs> anyway, everybody. It's you know, not easy when you're the only one sitting in the chair. I know that. So bear, oh. bear with us all. Thank you, people, please. No problem. So uh, we've been talking about Labor Day and all that good labor stuff, which, uh, um, you know, Labor Day is a time to remember that uh, Labor Day is about, first and foremost, it's about organizing and activism and getting a fair shake for working people, um, not just about taking a day off, but it's really about, um, besides taking a day off and remembering that life isn't just about working hard to line someone else's pockets, but also that uh, the reason we have a 40-hour work week is because people marched on the streets and literally died uh, in order to win the right to only a 40-hour week. And vigilance is the constant price of liberty, and so we always have to pay attention and make sure that we don't lose this right by the non-exercise or paying attention to it. Thereof. What I'm hearing is that people are working as much as 48 and more hours a week, though, that our average work week has gone up, but people aren't getting paid overtime and are putting in many, many more hours. And aren't taking the hours to which they are even entitled to That's often. right. Which I never understood when I was in retail. I took every hour I could get. <laughs> you know, get me away from there. That's fine. Yeah. You need that balance. Yeah. So. Have a life. Please. So things are sliding. Things are sliding for the American worker, and they have been. Certainly this administration is no friend of the American worker, but we're going to find that out this fall when Labor turns out its votes. So anyway, this Labor Day, let's all um, think a little bit about how we might, um, how we might uh, find a way to put a little bit of effort into uh, turning this situation around because the country is headed in the wrong direction the vast majority of our citizens know that and part of the way it's been headed in the wrong direction for much longer than bush has been in office but particularly exacerbated during bush's reign uh, reign of terror well you uh, need that time to redefine yourself to find yourself away from the work environment, away from the, the, the roles and the things that you're supposed to do and play at work. Please. I was in the middle of a sentence, Hal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Gift here. Anyway, uh, I don't remember what I was saying now. I'll just let that one go. Um, it's, it's great to have you with us, though. And speaking of having Hal with us, let's see. I think it's time for... Let's see if I can make this work. Hal Fuller. And... Gender talk, twisted, nasty <laughs> news. Okay, we're here. You're not waiting for me on that, are you? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Doing fine. What do you got for us tonight? Uh, well, I want to start with a quick poem that has to do about Katrina. I know it's, it's a little out of time and date, but it's a city near and dear to my heart. So I've got one of them. It's a quickie. Okay, go for it. Um, it's called Dying Damp. Fresh frozen to you from the Folly Farm. It's been a year we've dried the tears, the damp that dying often brings. Who knew, who could, who did, and didn't send for help? Born by race and sex and creed. Remember the old, from each according to talent, to each according to need, the whole base of democracy? 
and George Bush doesn't care for black folk. A charged charge too true and close to home. Enough time to rebirth. Remember that city's worth. Please bring it back, Lord. Come on, share. Let the Big Easy laugh again. Laugh again. That's mm-hmm. it. All right. Well, and you lived in uh, New Orleans, uh, went to school there, didn't you? Have? Yeah, it was, it was a special place, and, and a lot of what I am happened uh, from birthing there, from things I learned about myself there. Just getting away from home and uh, being on my own for the first time in my life, really, it was nice. Cool, yeah. Uh, college is a great time for all of us, I think. As probably many of the people that have just moved in recently are discovering. So that makes it even more apt. Yeah, in fact, actually, uh, right here, right now at WMBR, uh, we're having an open open house, or the, or the uh, good student managers of uh, WMBR are having an open, open house for the new students here at WMBR to show them the radio station and to encourage them to participate. And I'd like to send out a call from the staff of Gender Talk to anybody here at MIT who might be hearing our voices. Uh, WMBR is a great place, and you are most welcome here. And new students, uh, we'd just love to see you come on down the station and get involved. It's a lot of fun. And anybody who wants to help us out with gender talk or wants to, or wants to do something uh, different with us, uh, you're welcome. So wel- It's cheaper welcome than therapy. Trust me. Cool. Certainly, and, and you have more voices on the air then. Yeah, yeah. Win-win situation all around. Uh, come on down. It's a lot of fun, people, if you've never tried doing radio before. I, I certainly got bitten a long time ago. Bitten? Bitten by the radio bug. <laughs> uh, you, Nancy, you, Gordine, do you recognize the symptoms? I do. Okay. Oh, yeah. Moving along. Good thing, Al. Okay, here's a story from uh, California. Uh, do you have the Gwen Araujo story, or do you want to cover that in... No, please, you can go right ahead, and we'll probably be talking about it more with our uh, first guest as well. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll try not to step on their toes. I, I, this will just be brief. Uh, Jaron Neighbors received 11 years in the slang of California transgender teen Gwen Araujo, closing the book on a horrific hate crime. The 23-year-old man pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the killing of the transgender teen and was sentenced to 11 years in prison on Friday. Uh, he pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter early in the case. He admitted to aiding and abetting her murder and showed authorities where the teen's body was buried. Uh, four years later, but finally, we're reaching some resolution on that on that case. Yeah, and that's that's the final sentencing, and and that just happened. What August August twenty fifth? Yep. Yeah, and it's kind of a tough one. I I read an article too that Gwen Arahu's uh, family, some of the members of her family were forgiving, uh, trying to forgive uh, neighbors' family, and that some of them had gotten together, neighbors' neighbors' mother and Gwen Arahu's mother, and they were they were both crying. It's a hard it's one. Really I, hard. I wish them all well. I hope they yeah. can reach some kind of resolution just for their own peace. Yeah, and it seems to have been a theme of the uh, of the final sentencing. But uh, Gwen Arahu's mom, Sylvia Guerrero, says she really wants to know that she's sure she hasn't heard everything from neighbors, and she she wants him to tell her everything. Oh, share share what's going on. I hope they do. Yeah. Uh, here's a story from New York. New York. Four New York City police were called to an apartment, listen to this very carefully, in July in the Bronx concerning a landlord-tenant dispute 
were distracted by a teenager in the hallway smoking marijuana. Dumb. Mm. Started to chase him when a pit bull attacked the officers. The toll, 26 bullets later, one dead dog. Sorry about that. One bitten officer and three other officers wounded by each other's gunshots. Oh, my God. They were shooting each other. (laughs) They were shooting each other. Oh. Thank God for cops that can't shoot straight. Yeah. Oh. And they knocked a dog down. That's yeah, sad. I mean that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, will give un- it up for the, the the pit bull. It's unfortunate that the officers got shot as well. I mean, certainly, uh, last thing we need to be doing is sending our officers out to uh, do enforcement on uh, victimless so-called crimes, yeah, like marijuana-related can, offenses. Can we finally let that one go? One would Please? hope. Yeah. Okay, Indiana State Homeland Security officials told Vermilion County officials in July to stop using the special emergency-only highway message boards to advertise their charity fish fries and spaghetti dinners. What? They were using emergency boards? They're using billboards out on the highway to advertise their charity fish fries and spaghetti dinners. And someone was asking them to stop rather than saying, uh, you better stop or else? Someone was asking them to stop. (laughs) Cease and desist, huh? Cease and desist. (laughs) It seems to me that whoever is in... it, you know that uh, whoever's on the highway department who's responsible for those signs. Uh, and, and incidentally, there is kind of a fish theme to some of the stories tonight. So you, uh, you might, sorry, fishy Uh-oh. stories. Yeah, it seems to me that somebody isn't doing their job, and and that there ought to yep. be some uh, some serious uh, words spoken to that person. Maybe these were emergency fish fries. Okay, here's one that I was going <sighs> to use a couple of weeks ago and forgot to get in, and it's it's near and dear to the heart of many chocolatas out there, all of us. Addicts. Chocoholics. Chocoholics. A Ukrainian candy company began. That wouldn't be me. I'm down to about 12 ounces a day. So. <laughs> that, hey, that's, that's much better. Yeah. Very good. Thank I'm, you. I'm impressed. A Ukrainian candy company began marketing what may be the stickiest, richest, most fattening treat on the market. Hold on to your cookies, folks. Pure pork fat covered in chocolate. Pork fat covered pork in chocolate. Fat. Why not? They sell pork rinds, right? Yeah. They sell this deep-fried pork fat. Cracking so. open a finger-sized stick of fat in chocolate reveals oh. exactly that a vein of white fat. Uh, the dark chocolate product pokes fun at the traditional Ukrainian snack of salo, or salted pork fat, usually consumed with vodka and pickles. Uh, I think mm. I'll pass on the hors d'oeuvres there. Vodka and pickles. Well, you know, actually, I could see eating pork fat with vodka and pickles. Because vodka and pickles, you'd need something like pure fat to to go with it, right? You know, a little bit. That actually makes sense. But with chocolate, I'm sorry. I I can see the chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've established who is the true chocoholic of the two of them. Different strokes. Different strokes. Uh, From Las Vegas, after a lifetime of undressing beautiful women, Playboy now has a new cause, dressing men. Seeking to expand its lucrative licensing business, Playboy Enterprises has launched a line of menswear that represents a hip department from the silk smoking jackets favored by its 80-year-old founder. (laughs) Oh, they're they're dressing men in men's clothes? And, And lacy things. In lacy, but lacy men's clothes. Uh, at a nearby booth, rival entertainment brand, Playboy International, and it bashedly showed sex is always popular, displaying a line of four to six inch high heels in red satin metallics and faux leopard snacks and snakeskins for men. 
Oh, okay. There they go. Okay, so it is like lady clothes for men, or it's... Right. Yay. We're talking real cross-dressing here, folks. Well, it's about time, because, I mean, Playboy has been, you know, it's it's been one of those models for cross-dressers forever, so why not finally let the men have the clothes or make the clothes for the men or come out? I think that's what Hugh thought about it all. I think Hugh is finally coming out of the closet. Or at least Playboy is. Okay, here's here's mm. a, here's a story that was in the news recently. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking smoking jackets and and high heels. <laughs> I was just I had the image. Yeah, the smoking jackets. I don't understand. That's not you know velvet smoking jackets and and, and uh, high heels and high heels. Well, Might well, be interesting. It's been done. Uh, so are the are these like pumps or are they just high heeled men's shoes? I hope they're flats because I hate walking in. in you said they were high heels. They're they're high heels. So are they like pumps or are they just high heeled men's shoes? They're super they weren't high clear heels. on which they were. I prefer pumps because well, I can hell, walk in. Well, hell, you know, when you come on a show like Gender Talk and you report on a story like this, you know we're going to ask whether or not it's about cross dressing or whether it's just about frilling up men's clothes. Yes. And <laughs> yes, tall of the back. And you you don't have a definitive answer for us. No. <laughs> well, at least you're clear that, on that. that. That's new and different on Gender Talk. <laughs> it's called Use Your Imagination. Right. I, I can live with that. Thank you, Hal. Okie doke. <laughs> uh, and, and sort of on a, a similar vein, rumors persist and theoretical pictures that President Bush got himself a Woody during the last debate. What? During the last debate, George got a little excited well, in, I, his, uh, his, in his pants. I hear that, but, you know, why are they saying that? Uh, because he did. Someone noticed. The Supreme Court is investigated in swapping pics in chat rooms. The Supreme Court has investigated? I made up that last part. I knew you did. Uh, I just had to. (sighs) No, you didn't. It's it's power. He's just getting way too thrilled. Yeah. Got to help us all. (laughs) A lot of that going around. From London, hedgehogs have finally humbled Burger King giant McDonald's after years of campaigning, forcing the company to redesign its killer McFlurry ice cream containers. Up to now, the opening in the container has been large enough for hedgehogs to get their heads into a lick for the leftover dessert, a trap they have been unable to withdraw from, so dying of starvation oh. in untold numbers. So it's like, be careful with your trash, folks. Oh, yeah. Trash trash can be fatal to animals. Oh, yep. yeah, especially those little things that hold six-packs, any kind of uh, oh, little six-packs yeah. or, or any water. Kind of, You've got to cut you know that out. Well, they're working on a, a container with a smaller aperture that hedgehogs can't get their, their heads into. Any, well, then rats any, will get their heads in there. Any kind of plastic. I have less sympathy for rats. Oh, wait, Hal. <laughs> I'm sorry. I spent, a, I spent a delightful morning yesterday watching a wonderful large rat <laughs> bound across the grounds and get seeds and then bound back. It, was, it, was, it really made my day. Really? You can have them. Yeah. That's, that's okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, here from Greenville, Maine, anglers, don't be alarmed if you catch it, speaking of the fish theme, a trout with an antenna coming out of its belly. It's just a robo-trout. After 75 transmitter-equipped trout have been released in Moosehead Lake and its tributaries by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife as a part of an effort to track them and maintain the right mix of fish, 
Three of them have been caught by anglers, the fish sends transmitters and antenna, won first place in a fishing derby and is being mounted on a taxidermist shop. I, I figure you'd want to mount it with the antenna because it would be more unique that way, but what do I know? Well, I guess we're going to hear more stories. Mounting of robo-trout. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> no, we, we, that, that's it for that one. Um, that's it for that one? That's it for that particular one. For how, how, much, how much we got time for? Uh, another uh, one? Another one? Yeah. Okay, here's, here's from um, Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, a goalkeeper for the Celtics, I guess it's Celtics pronounced there, that's the way they pronounce it, was played in a soccer match against the Rangers in Glasgow. As part of the second half, uh, Boric, who is Polish and signed with the Celtics a year ago, signed himself as he took his position. The Strathclyde police were called in and their report was passed on to the prosecutors. The Crown Office ruled out that the charged atmosphere of a football match, the act of crossing himself, provoked alarm and crowd trouble, and as such, it's considered a breach of the peace. Oh. oh, please. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I mean, dominie, 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 what's the biggie? I guess that'd be like, that, that'd be akin to convicting somebody for, you know, making a Muslim sign, you know, in a, in a, in a stadium in the United States. Is there a corresponding Muslim sign? I don't think there is. I don't think so, but, um, oh, perhaps kneeling and facing the Easter, is it East that Muslims right. faced? So perhaps, you know, doing something like that. You know, I would hope that we haven't gotten to the point where, you know, we're going to hassle people for doing such things. That we have better things to do with their and our time? One would hope. Well, okay. you know, maybe maybe it has a historical precedence. Maybe some people were conquered by people of particular religions, and maybe there's bad taste in their mouth. I know that when I was at Zuni Pueblo uh, in towards the end of May, one of the things they had was uh, two beautiful murals, and the murals were per, uh, of the Kachinas. And someone had put a Christ up with a halo in traditional Indian clothing, and since only 10% of the Zuni people ever converted to Christianity, they were outraged, and they stopped this mural project. And the murals are absolutely beautiful, but they were very outraged because they remembered the Spanish conquistadors conquering yeah. them with Christianity and putting up churches where their kivas were and yeah. killing people. So Makes there sense. might be a historical precedent for people to be upset. Excellent point, Mackenzie. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that'll do it. Will that do it? That'll do it. All right. That's it for Je for Twisted Nasty News. Wait a minute. I hear a bird. I hear a bird. When everybody's heard about the bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Hey, Raven, Raven, how you doing? Oh, Nancy, I've been listening to you and Al and Gordine, and I heard a lot about animals tonight, and poor extinct dodo birds and killed pit bulls and and people not liking rats and i just been sitting here listening just yeah. listening figured we'd see. find some way to piss you off here. just listening uh -huh. now just listening a little bit uh-huh yeah i i found a good blog with uh one of one of my friends and I, you can see my twin sister on this blog you can go to www Cause and Quarks. 
C-A-W-S-A-N-D-K-W-O-R-K-S dot blogspot dot com. And you'll see my twin sister there. No kidding. Oh, I've never met. <laughs> now you figure that out. Yeah. yeah okay. Separated by birth. Right, and they're writing about, uh, they, they actually had a little piece about me, and there's some pictures of some ravens, some wonderful raven pictures, and all kinds of little news about ravens and, and, and crows. Cos and quarks. That's right. That's right. right. Sad story I'm going to start with. In uh, Africa, in Chad, they have a park that's home to about 300,000 uh, elephants. And uh, every year during the wet season, some of the elephants wander outside of the park. Yeah. And the second they step outside of the park, there are poachers that are killing them. Oh. And Bullets on the ready. Yep. They're killing them for their ivory because there's a big market for ivory, uh, a big black market for uh, ivory. Oh. And so the people in the park got a plane and they started flying over and they discovered hundreds of elephants that have been just massacred and were just left there and uh and and bleeding and and all they do is they take their tusks they they took their tusks don't buy the tusks don't buy the ivory it's illegal for one thing don't don't buy any don't buy any ivory at all uh they even uh opened fire on the plane that was flying over and now what they think they're going to do is they're going to provide aerial and ground patrols outside of the parks Good. to try to intimidate the poachers and drive the poachers out because they think uh, that it will scare them. And they're going to they're going to patrol the whole area around the park too to try to save more of the elephants. I would say the flights should be accompanied by gunfire, serious gunfire aimed yeah. at the poachers. Leave those elephants alone. Once, which I, I have since lost, and I'm just as happy to have lost. I always felt guilty about it. Yeah. Because it was ivory. Because it, it used to be, it used to be an elephant. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It, we got to we got to change those practices. Got a good story though. Yeah. You know, remember in the Israeli Lebanon war recently about all the oil spilling and we reported on how it was uh, hurting the loggerback turtles sure there's an effort going on right now in uh, israel Uh, all summer long they've been working to get the baby turtles to get safe passage back into the mediterranean sea yeah and uh, they transplanted loggerhead nests from open beaches to a protected hatchery near northern Israel. And after three nights of natural hatchings, they dug out the baby turtles that couldn't climb out of their nests. And uh, many of the, the newborns uh, came out, and they helped them reach the water. Yay. So they're, they're trying really hard to, to make sure that those little baby loggerback turtles are making it. Wonderful. And I like to hear news like that. Yeah, that's a great thing. We're trying. I think we all like that. And one of my friends sent me a story. There was a zoo in California, and a mother tiger gave birth to a rare set of triplet tiger clubs. But unfortunately, due to the complications of the pregnancy, they were born prematurely. And uh, because of their tiny size, they all died after uh, shortly oh. after birth. And the mother tiger was recovering from the delivery and then started to decline in health. And although physically they found out that she was fine, 
So the veterinarians figured that the loss of her litter had caused the tigress to fall into a depression. Sure. And they thought if she could surrogate maybe another cub, maybe it would bring her out of her depression. So they checked around all the zoos and tried to find another little cub, and they were unable to do so. And so they decided that they would introduce another species, which they felt might be a little bit risky, because sometimes, as we've heard, mothers of one species will take on the care of a different species. The only orphans they could find were a litter of little wiener pigs. Hmm. And the zookeepers wrapped the piglets in tiger skin, and they placed the babies around the mother tiger. And you can... you can. Uh, Try to think, would they become pork chops, or would they get nursed by the mother tiger? So they made, You be the judge, Nancy. So they made the little piglets look like tigers. They That's put stripes right. on them. That's right. They were milking it for all it was worth. And then the tiger actually accepted the little piglets? And nursed those little piglets. We're going to have to put some of these pictures on our website to go with this story. Well, I have to do it because that's another case of one species taking on the other species, and that's a case of cross-species support for one another. Yeah! So if you're listening via podcast... uh, To, you know, go visit our program page for this show if you want to see pictures of the tiger with ah! the little pigs. And for further Call. information, see Romulus and Remus. <laughs> exactly. That's it. I'm the bird with the word. You certainly are. Thank you so much, Raving Raven. And now, it's time for the Gender Talk Gender News. Uh, let's see. What have we got for us tonight? Uh... Uh, let's see. Oops, hang on a second. Sorry, folks. Taking me a second to come up with this one. First of all, uh, we have a story from, oh yeah, from New York, from the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Uh, apparently there's a transgender or a transsexual teacher who's transitioned at a school there, and what they've done is they've put a bunch of the information about this teacher up online where the parents can go view it. This is the information that they're going to present to the students on the first day of class. This is a, a teacher who is was a male teacher and is coming back as a woman this year. And so what they're going to do is the first day of class, they're going to um, be uh, doing some kind of a presentation to the students about this teacher, explaining why... Um, uh, she is now a she instead of a he, and they've put it up online for students to see, uh, for the students' parents to see beforehand. And if the and if the parents don't want their kids to see it, they can send in a note to the school and oh. tell the school that they don't want. Yeah, well, it sounds like a winning strategy. Yeah, it sounds like a good strategy to me. I mean, I mean, there's always going to be teachers who are going to want to, uh, you know, keep their kids away from this sort of thing, or you know, you have. You kind of have to give parents the choice, especially in more conservative areas. Well, I'm just hoping that it's done well enough. Did you get a chance to go to the site and see what it they looked like? They didn't post. Okay. They didn't post a link to the site, so I don't know what the site looks like. If anybody out there um, has a link to that site, send it along so that we can uh, post that. I guess what I'd, I'd be thinking about is I'm, I'm hoping that it's done uh, in a positive manner. Well, of course. But it's still the the fact that they're saying you can keep your children home, it still brings up that kind of stigmatizing feeling that somehow uh, transsexual 
homosexuals or transgender people are going to be harmful to your children. Well, of course it does. You know. Of course. And I hope that that site really dismisses all of those myths. Yeah, the preference would be simply to do it simply to have her do her transition and to um, then go and just tell the students this is what the situation is. And students can handle it. Um, The problem is that some of their parents are going to be prejudiced against it and so we don't want you don't want to create a division between the student and their parents and so you need you know it's 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 a kid gloves kind of situation and the school board there is doing a good job the principal is doing a good job of trying to handle the situation as diplomatically as they can and, and it I sounds like it's a reasonable supportive. oh i believe they are yeah and they certainly are if you're stuck in the middle of that situation there's all sorts of help that you can get from like uh, gender talk and that's right and you can also go to uh, gendersanity.org, is it? Or .com, I don't re- remember. Yeah, gendersanity. Oh, I don't remember if it's .org or .com. But try but, try either one, and you can get information also about transitioning in the workplace. Or, or, or go to the Gender Talk resources page. We have a link to Gender Sanity That's right. uh, there at our resources page. Go to, go to our resources page, and there's information about transition. There's information about employment. Our resources page really does have some good resources. By the way, while we're talking about resources pages, I need to remind folks that the MassTPC.org uh, resource page is excellent. Tremendous resources. It's New England focused, uh, and Massachusetts in particular. So it's more kind of a local resources sort of thing than a online resource for everybody. But uh, it also is a good model for other communities to set up a wiki to do your local resources. In yeah, your check your local listing. And how do people anyone. get there, Nancy? MassTPC.org, and then click on resources. M A S S T P C. Org and click on resources and see what we've set up. And, you know, and actually, if uh, if you have a group organization somewhere else and you need help setting up a wiki like that uh, for your local community, I'll be happy to help you out. You can email nancy at gendertalk.com. Uh, we have a story from Ghana. A gay conference has been banned in Ghana. The Ghana's government banned a conference for gay men and lesbians due to take place there later this month. Information Minister Kwamena Bartis said that... As homosexuality was illegal in Ghana, the gathering was not permitted. Quote, government does not condone any such activity which violently offends the culture, morality, and heritage of the entire people of Ghana, he said. Get over it. I got news for you. It does not violate the morality of the gay people of Ghana. I guarantee you that. Mm. They have no problem with it. I I suspect so. And I also suspect that in your heritage in Ghana that you have always had a gay underground, whether you knew it or not. You got drag queens all over the place, honey. And there's always been homosexuality, and um, all you're doing is forcing it to stay underground. It's an unfortunate thing, but it just points out that even even while here in um, on Gender Talk and in the United States and other places in the world, we struggle to advance um, acceptance of transgenderism and of gender diversity. Um, there are places that are 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 still um, struggling with um, basic issues of acceptance of homosexuality, which this country came to many years ago, um, uh, decades ago. I mean, we're still struggling with that here, too. But um, it's certainly not illegal to be homosexual in this country, but in some countries it still is. And so um, we need to remember, even as we're advocating for transgender rights, that we still need to advocate for gay rights, for basic gay and lesbian rights. It's just something that, unfortunately, we need to keep uh, in our sights and not not forget about that one. A bit of good news from San Antonio. 
federal jurors this past Wednesday convicted a former San Antonio Police Department officer of sexually abusing a transsexual while on duty. Dean Gutierrez, uh, Gutierrez, a 16-year-old veteran, excuse me, I'm sure I mispronounced that, uh, who was fired after being indicted in the June 2005 incident, took the verdict with stoicism, according to the Metro State uh, and and Guillermo Contreras, the Express News staff writer. Um, anyway, uh, how nice to see that um, that we're starting, there is starting to be respect shown to transsexual, transgender persons such that um, the crimes perpetrated against trans people by police now are beginning to be prosecuted. And this is not to say that all police out there are committing crimes against trans people, because that's certainly not the case, and some of our best friends are, have certainly been police um, officers. But um, in some areas, at least, where there, that is happening, it's being prosecuted. And for people that want more information, you can go to ACLU.org, because they released a report showing the uh, police brutality, which is pretty rampant, and this was just in the U.S., uh, against gays, lesbian, and transgender people. Their report? It's a very lengthy yeah. report. We've talked about it before on Gender Talk. You can uh, go to our website and you can link to that. Great. Uh, here's a here's a story that actually might have been more appropriate for the twisted nasty, Hal. Uh-huh. Uh, pastor accused of rape under the guise of casting out a lesbian demon. In Fort Worth, a pastor was in, has been indicted for allegedly raping a church member at his house last year under the guise of casting out demons. Yeah, I, I've got that one, actually. I'm glad you're covering it. Yeah, apparently the 63-year-old pastor of the Prayer House of Faith was arrested last November. Police began investigating him after a 22-year-old woman reported that he raped her twice at his Fort Worth home. I mean, as, as, as if a, a normal demon isn't bad enough, it has to be a lesbian demon. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, uh, he told the woman that a sex spirit and lesbian demon were inside her and needed to be cast out. And it's not a man's fantasy at all. No. He then asked her to lie on the floor and began yelling at her as though she were a demon, then held her down and raped her. Uh. That's hideous. Yeah. Yeah. He, of course, denies having sex contact with the woman, but... uh, Is she pressing charges? I believe so. Good. I mean, that's why he's being... Um, charged. Uh, let's see, what else have we got? Uh, um, I think, uh, let's see, I know there's more. Oh, yeah, in California, the, the, the governor, I, I can't do Arnold, but uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. There you go. Arnold Schwarzenegger signed an anti discrimination bill that uh, bans discrimination in state run or state funded programs. Um, such as police protection on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So Arnold Schwarzenegger has has signed a forward-looking bill on uh, on GLBT rights. Oh, yeah. goody, because this is no time for Arnold to look back. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's it's well, I don't know about Arnold looking back. Uh, he, he's uh, he's got a mixed record when it comes to such things. That's why it's kind of surprising. Um, I, I found it so, but. Surprising that he signed this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, according to uh, local folks out there in California, let's see. The um, Well, anyway, it's so it extends non-discrimination in state services, so that's a good thing. 
That's so good. it's a step in the right direction. Uh, let's see. Do I have anything else uh, to report tonight? I think that's it. In Seattle, uh, the Seattle that just came out with a negative ruling on gay marriage, the group that uh, that filed for that is going to appeal. So you'll hear more about that. And uh, there's also a story out of Russia uh, that you may have heard about. Uh, a cop commits suicide after performing transgender operation on self. Whoa. Yeah. Russian policeman attempted suicide after performing a transgender surgery on him. It's really a transsexual surgery. Uh, you know, there is no transgender surgery. It's transsexual. If it requires surgery, it's sex. In my view, although I guess if you were having so your face he feminized, that would be transgender. self-castration? Is that what happened? He was found with a rope around his neck and a pool of blood. His genitals had been cut off and the wound scrupulously stitched up. Oh, my. Painkillers and a bloody needle, as well as the remains of his genitals, were lying on the floor next to him. Oh, girls, this man is an idiot. Do not try this at home. Apparently he had tried it before he had scars from a previous such surgery. Mm. What this speaks to, though, I think, uh, is the real anguish that transsexuals feel and the culture of disapproval in which they exist to the point where they are forced into these extreme um, self-castration uh, attempts as the only recourse. Imagine how hideous this must be to do to yourself. Imagine how much more hideous it has to be to come out in the culture as transsexual how forbidden does it have to be? How much do people have to look down on transsexuals in order to drive transsexuals to such a thing as self-castration? And that's, that's, that's what I take from this story. This is evidence of the discrimination, gross discrimination against transsexuals. Although when, when transsexuals have surgery, they sometimes are more accepted than transgender persons in society. Oh, yeah, post-operative transsexuals are regarded as people, often regarded as people who are, you know, conforming to the norm in in a socially acceptable way. So it's kind of double-edged. There's, I think, a lot. How so? What's double-edged about? Well, in the sense that the culture punishes and stigmatizes so much that we have incidents like the one that you described. Right. But on the same hand, oftentimes the person, if they undergo that surgery, are more embraced than, than persons that decide that not to have the surgery. That's yeah. so catch, that catch yeah. 22. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting. I was, I was involved in the case of a 16-year-old rural New Mexico uh, transgender person who had uh, performed a self-castration with liquid nitrogen. Ooh, and man. she had done that with the hopes that if she ended up in the hospital, she mistakenly thought that University of New Mexico Hospital would provide her with transsexual surgery. That they would complete it. And she lived with uh, absolute religious fundamentalist uh, grandparents, and life was pretty unbearable. It it was very sad. They're in the worst possible case. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, on that note, we're going to move on. Sorry to leave you with a little bit of a downer, folks. I try, I usually try, but I'm a little bit out of sorts having to do the engineering at the same time as all the rest tonight. So We'll cheer you up later sometime. Yeah, we sure will. Perhaps right away. It's time now for the question of the week Gordine, with Gordine McKenzie. Okay, and our uh, question this week comes from uh, Brenna. And Brenna writes... 
In terms of gender identity, the world seems to place so much importance upon whether we are male or female. And at the same time, it places so much importance upon identifiers such as clothing and mannerisms. But as transgender people, we are asking the world to not place such rigid standards upon gender so that we can become our true selves. What has been confusing me, however, is that if others are making a big deal out of my being transgender, why am I making a big deal to be identified as female? At one point in my life, I thought I could just be me, neither male nor female. That is society's definitions of gender. But as I become older, I feel a strong pull to my feminine self, a self I felt I have been, always been. Am I making any sense? I guess what I am asking is what is truly male and truly female. I definitely feel female. Welcome to the right place to ask this question. Boy, Brenna, yeah, that certainly is a good question, Brenna. You know, that's a, it's, I wondered the same thing myself because I live as a woman. I was born male. I live as a woman and I've been doing it for uh, 13 years now, almost 14. And um, there's times when I just want to be more feminine, when I feel like I'm just not being feminine enough and it's really important for me to be womanly and all. And there's other times when, um, and a lot of the time really, when I just don't want to have to worry about what I am. I just don't want to have to worry about a gender and whether I'm a man or a woman. Like, why Why is that required of us, that we define as one of a binary? And why can't we just be human beings and people? And why do we have to be sorted by our culture into one of these two categories? Because we care what they think. And that's a big point. What I've, what, one of the things I also notice is that as I get older, I care less about what other people think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, because you know they're idiots anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Kidding. Oh, I would, I would have said, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to be PC here. No, you know, just you always tell me I should be. Uh, I do. Yes. Uh, anyway, yeah. Well, no, it, you know, when when you're young, your peers are very important to you. Whether you're at school, whether it's your immediate family before school or after school, uh, whether you're in college, and then when you start working, the people you're working with. As you get older, I mean, at, at, at my point, my stage in life, um, I really pretty much sort of do my thing and, and, and I look to my peers for some respect but I certainly don't look to them for approval and um, it may be that because I transitioned that you know that helped me get past all that stuff but I'm really left with um, sort of not knowing how to identify myself. I occasionally get ma'am sir when I go out and I'm not even trying it's just like you know you get the ma'am sir because they yeah. misread you the first time. Yeah, you you have a yeah you you hell have an appearance where you you are unabashedly true to yourself, and you'll go out wearing jewelry or or you know whatever. And I think one of the questions that Brenna is asking is like, and you're certainly uh, talking about is what does it really mean to be truly male or female? If we're just looking linguistically. Male and female refer to biological sex, but we know that biological sex does not determine gender. And, you know, what does it mean when we say, and, and we all do it, 
you know, I can say, oh, I'm feeling pretty masculine today, or I feel like James Dean, or I feel like, you know, whatever. But what does that mean? What are are we identifying in ourselves? Are we just identifying parts of the whole and maybe parts that need to, to come out at some point? Or, you know, I don't know. What does it mean? Yeah, I think I think well, I think male and female are clearly physiological categories, and that they just um, you know that that's sort of like that's what your body is. Yeah. Um, man and woman are cultural and sociological exactly. constructs. Exactly. And man and woman are something is to some degree it's an elective thing. You get to choose the fact that, you know, how many how many boys were raised saying this is what you got to do to be a man. It isn't like you're going to be a man automatically. You have to do this to be a man. And the same thing is true of girls. Well, you become masculinized in, in, in our culture and, and you're told that you can only emit certain behaviors because nothing else will be acceptable. Same with girls. You, you have to earn manhood and you earn womanhood. You earn womanhood by raising kids in the popular canon. If you're if you're going to the strict certainly strict ideas of gender, there's a lot of, of gender, people. Sure. There's a lot of people who would say that's what really defines womanhood is yeah. having kids and raising a family. I am not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> I know. So, um, Brenna, you know, I think personally, I like to think of the transgender movement as really challenging what it is to be a man or a woman, and challenging the automatic association of maleness with manhood and femaleness with womanhood. I like to think of the transgender movement as saying we each have the option to be who we are, whatever that may be, regardless of what our body shape is. Do you think that we all hold different ideas also? Uh, I mean, we certainly have the cultural ideas, and we know the stereotypes of how we are all conditioned to be boys or girls or men or women, but do we hold different ideas in our own mind of what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman? You know, do we have these archetypes? I know, like, of course. like when I think of women, I think of uh, Jones Steel, shoulder pads, Crawford, yeah. you know, and when I think of a man, I think of... Uh, more like a James Dean, or I think of Clint uh, Eastwood, you know, or Johnny Depp, or you know, everyone. Everyone has a different, different. Johnny sort. Depp's not a very manly man. But that's I mean, the kind of that's what I like, or the ones that that twist the gender somewhat, that don't go to the far extremes. You're just weird, Mackenzie. <laughs> I guess I am, Nangeroni. <laughs> oh, just a quick note. There's going to be a release of a new movie of The Wicker Man starring Johnny Depp. I don't know whether it oh, is a musical or not. I am hoping that it is, but um, we'll, we'll soon find out. And why is this, re- is this relevant? Because it's Johnny Depp, or is The Wicker Man a story that has some relevancy? It's coming up to Halloween. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that's right. It's a horror. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Classic, quote, it happened to be a musical. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brenna, thank you so much for your uh, question. We really appreciate. We appreciate. And Brenna, of course, is a friend of Ravens, right? That's right. Uh, and we could go on and on thinking about this, and, and yeah, we'll keep a, thinking about. It. That's what gender talk is all about. That's right. It's a big subject, uh, and um, we hope that we've whetted your appetite. But all I can say is, go back and listen to our other gender talks. <laughs> Uh, we got 12 years of uh, talking about this subject for sure. And for whatever is female and feels good for you and feels home, then that's that's where you should be. That's right. That does it for our question. Send your question to question at gendertalk.com, and we'll do our best to answer it. Now it's time 
for that feature presented every other week from our good friend Evelyn Snell in the Netherlands. It's called Evelyn's Dyer, and this week's entry is called Prague. And it goes like this. Evelyn's Diary Follow the day-to-day ups and downs of a Dutch transsexual woman in her struggle with the world as it is. Episode 47, Prague Last week we had a short vacation in Prague in the Czech Republic. As you know, I was a bit apprehensive about this trip, afraid to have to use my passport with a male name in it, afraid to run into trouble at the security check, and most of all worried about the acceptance towards transsexual women in Prague. The first hurdle to take was the passport check at the Dutch airport. The lady who had to check it looked very carefully at me and at my picture in the passport and she came to the only possible conclusion, this was indeed my passport. And that is all she needs to know. If I look similar enough to the picture in my passport, it doesn't matter if I dye my hair green or purple or grow breasts. So she smiled at me, handed back my passport and told me I was free to go ahead. The second hurdle was the security check. But since I passed the metal detector without a bleep, people hardly looked at me there. Julia had a lot more trouble passing that stage. She hadn't taken off all her bracelets, so the detector bleeped and she was searched as if she were a terrorist. Ridiculous to think we would want to blow up the aircraft on our way to a great vacation. If we want to do that, we will do it on our way back home. So far, so good. We arrived safely in Prague and we didn't have any problem getting into the country there. We soon noticed many people were staring at me in Prague. I may feel quite passable in the Netherlands, but apparently that has to do with the acceptance of the Dutch people as well as with my looks. In Prague, people looked at me as if I were a creature from a different planet. They certainly aren't used to seeing gender queer people there. But there were no real problems. One evening, when I was a bit more dressed up than usual because we wanted to go out, we almost ran into some trouble in the subway. A couple of guys on the platform were looking at me in a rather aggressive way. We made sure we got into a different compartment of the subway than they did, and we didn't see them anymore. Before we went there, I had already done some googling to find out about the acceptance of queer people over there, and I wasn't disappointed. I had found several gay-friendly bars and restaurants in Prague, so I had decided to look at some of those to give you a report about them. Café Café on Ten Ritirska is listed as a gay bar in our travel guide. 
but most of the guests are heterosexuals. It is a beautiful place with large windows and lots of mirrors. A place to look at people and to be seen yourself. Being close to Vaslavske Namiesti, it is often visited by tourists and all the staff speaks some English. Another nice place we visited was Street Café Maler on 28 Blanitschka, listed as a lesbo club in my travel guide. Unfortunately, it was not very busy when we were there, but our pages on the internet show that it is not always so quiet. We found a very pleasant atmosphere and nice modern music there. The bar personnel didn't speak any English, but some of the guests did. I haven't told you about the sheer beauty of Prague. This can be found in any travel guide and on the internet. All I wanted to tell you is that it is also a safe place to go for us genderqueers. Recommended. For Gender Talk, this was Evelyn Snell from the Netherlands. Thanks for listening. I hope to join you again in two weeks. That's Evelyn's Now with Evelyn's Diary. You're listening to Gender Talk on WMBR in Cambridge. It's nice to know there's safe places. Reminds me of when we're in Provincetown or there's other little pockets where, where you feel like, wow, I'm home. It's okay. Huh? Yeah, isn't it a good thing? Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's cool. Okay, I think uh, we've got our first guest on the phone. We absolutely do. And Gordine, you do. want to do the honors? I, I would be more than happy to. We have Victoria Steinberg. Uh, Victoria is a recent graduate of Boston College Law School. She's currently working as a clerk at the Massachusetts Appeals Court, and she's been active in social justice activism in Boston for 10 years two of which were spent as the legislative director for the Massachusetts chapter of the National Organization for Women. And she's worked on a range of issues, including reproductive rights, protection for survivors of domestic violence, LGBT equality, anti-discrimination legislation, and state legislative campaigns. And as I mentioned earlier in the uh, program, I came across uh, an article that uh, Victoria had written in the Boston College Third World Law Journal. The article is entitled, Heat of Passion Offense, uh, Motion and Bias in uh, Transpanic Mitigation Claims. And um, this is a book review, but it actually also goes into the transgender panic uh, defense. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, uh, Victoria. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, we've been looking our forward pleasure. to it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Victoria, would you spell out what uh, trans panic defense is and how it fits into the heat of passion? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, I will try. Um, the um, the trans panic defense is essentially very much like the gay panic defense, which unfortunately is all too well known in yes. our community. Um, the trans panic defense is an attempt by someone who has perpetrated a murder of a transgender person um, to mitigate their punishment by essentially claiming that they were um, thrown into 
some extreme passion, usually disgust or shame or um, anger, at the revelation that their partner or the person next to them at a bar um, or someone they just met is uh, identifies as transgender. So um, in the gay panic arena, I would say that the Matthew Shepard case is probably the most um, well-known attempt to use a panic defense um, in, in this context. And, and uh, however, the, the judge in that case did not allow it. So in my article, what I try to do is to explain that um, heat of passion defenses exist for a good reason in our system. They exist as a way of saying, essentially, that as a society, we understand that there are some situations where people might do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Um, a good example is if, uh, if you were to hear about the murder of your child. If someone should walk up to you and say that they did something horrible to your child, you might fly into a rage. You might do something you wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and in our society, we've had heat of passion uh, defenses around for a long time to a- account for those situations. Um, but it's being it's being co-opted by defense uh, attorneys who are defending perpetrators of violence against LGBT people in a way that that I claim isn't isn't legally justifiable. Now, Victoria, um, I want to clarify one point. Um, the um, defendants who are using this. Um, they aren't really saying it's because of the way that this person identified, right? They're saying it's because this person does not have the genitals that their presentation led me to expect that they had. Isn't that, isn't that the case, that it's really right. about genitals? Yep, that is absolutely the case. Um, and if you look at the transcripts of these trials, if you look at the memos that are written by um, the defense teams in these cases, you find that um, there's just an extraordinary um, assumption on the part of the attorneys um, regarding what should be revealed, right? What what we should know about our partner when we first get to know them. And, and uh, many authors have made the point that there's all, there are all sorts of things one doesn't know about one's partner when one meets them. Um, and the question legally uh, in terms of heat of passion defenses is, is it reasonable for a person to then fly into um, a violent rage upon learning one of those things that you that you didn't know? Yeah, that's a great explanation, very clear. And that begs the whole question of uh, should one be required to reveal what their genitals are to someone? Right, and I don't think anyone has ever, you know, has ever honestly made that claim that we should all have to do that. And That's I think right. that legally and logically it's, it's impossible. No it's one, not feasible. No one's ever made that claim? No one's ever made that claim, but um, what my article tries to do is to set out to explain that, that legally there are elements of this of a heat of passion defense that have to be met um, for the defense to ever reach the jury. And so, um, I should say, however, um, judges aren't holding defense attorneys to that requirement of, of making the defense attorneys prove up every element. So... So instead, um, they're allowing defense teams to um, make claims about something that, that a lot of defendants are calling sexual fraud, um, which essentially, if, if they were required to define it, would be exactly what you're saying, would be a claim that we should all need, you know, we should all be required to, um, 
either tell or show something about our genitals to our partners from the very beginning because mm-hmm. any surprise would um, justify a violent attack. Um, but they're not, our, our judicial system isn't uh, requiring of the defense, um, of the defense attorneys what they require of defense attorneys in other contexts. And um, that's really the point I'm, I'm trying to make. Fascinating. So um, now I would ascribe that to prejudice on the part of the judges um, and the judicial system that says transgenderism is weird. Uh, This makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it. And so we want this to go away as quickly as possible. Mm. I mean, I I agree that there's a great great deal of bias in the system. I think there's also just um, ignorance. I think that when these cases come across the desk of a judge, it may, I think it often is, the very first interaction that this judge is having with the issues of a transgender person. And so the question for me is, how can we educate our judicial system? How can we educate our judges, our lawyers, of course the, the public who will be jurors, so that, this, um, so that there isn't a knee-jerk reaction to just allow an all possible information, but rather so that the, the judges are uh, inclined to treat this as any other heat of passion defense, require that all of the elements be met, um, because I think that, that in any transparent case they're not met, um, but that this, this ignorance of the situation is um, causing a knee-jerk reaction where judges are just allowing in whatever information the defense attorneys say is relevant. And that knee-jerk reaction, then, um, are you disagreeing with my characterization, or are you saying... Uh, um, that there's some other reason, some other reason why they're having this knee-jerk reaction that causes them to basically throw out jurisprudence. I would say that I would um, completely agree with your characterization, and just add that in addition to prejudice, I think there is um, just simply a lack of information. That once some judges are educated about what it means to be um, a person who identifies as transgender, there actually there have been cases where judges have thrown out this defense. Um, full cloth once they understand what's going on in a case. So I would say that it's not just prejudice, it's also misinformation or, or no information. That, that, that last leads me to conclude that our system is biased against diversity because any time, because what you're saying is that any time a judge is confronted with an unfamiliar situation or people with unfamiliar characteristics, that unless educated, that he's going to allow the prosecution to um, basically um, step over the boundaries of normal legal procedure in prosecuting that case. Would you agree with that? Um, I think what I would say is that the, the judicial system and the judges in it are in a dynamic relationship with the rest of society. So where there's bias in society, where there's you know a lack of information in the general public, um, that's reflected in our system, and unfortunately, I think you can you know you can go back through the history of our judicial system and see bias um, based on race, based on religion, um, based on all kinds of uh, minority uh, characteristics reflected in our system. And there's a chicken or egg problem. Yeah. You know, do our jurors instruct our judges? Do our judges instruct our jurors? Um, do the lawyers come in with these biased arguments, or do the judges um, disallow them? What will what will happen? Excellent, excellent points. Well, and at, at one time, I, I believe, as you point out in the in the article, 
uh, it was seen that uh, if a woman had an affair with another man and if she was married, that her husband was justified in terms of murdering her. That there was there was a less uh, less of a, a response. Uh, that's 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 incredible. That's that's to me it's that's unimaginable in terms I, of heat of passion. Yeah, I don't. When 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 did that cease being true? Well, unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, it is yeah. true in a minority of states that that is still sufficient provocation. So, one of the elements of the heat of any heat of passion defense in any state is what's called sufficient provocation. So. Um, this is a great example. In all states at one time, finding your wife in bed with another man was sufficient provocation. End of story. Um, and your, you wouldn't be excused, but your punishment would be mitigated through is, this. Is the reverse also true? Um, well, I, that's a great question. I don't know of any cases where, um, where it's been tried. But okay. what my, what my article, um, tries to do is suggest to, to, judges suggest to the system that, um, as happened in the Matthew Shepard case, as has happened in some other cases, judges can say, you know, discovering a characteristic about another person simply isn't sufficient provocation, end of story, which many judges have done um, across the country, unfortunately, not all of them. Well, and in fact, the the Gwen Arahu case has really stimulated um, the creation of a bill, AB 1160, the Gwenarahu Justice for Victims Act, uh, which, to my understanding, is working to ban the trans panic defense in California? That's right. Well, um, right. I've heard it advertised as a bill that would um, make panic strategies completely impermissible, but I think... In fact, what it would do, it's kind of a two-part bill. Mm -hmm. It would require funding to give prosecutors information and training about mm -hmm. curbing bias based on gender identity. I think, I think that's a great idea. I do too. Um, and I hope that, that that passes. It would also, though, um, allow any party in a, in litigation in a criminal case to, um, basically require the court to give certain jury instructions to the jury um, regarding bias. So right before the jury would go to deliberate, the judge would be required to say certain words, uh, I guess to the effect that they should be careful not to mm. allow bias to influence their decision. Um, and I actually I have mixed feelings about that part of the bill. Um, I feel pretty strongly that the judicial system needs to evolve out of the use of this defense um, altogether, and it should do so on its own. And I, I feel nervous about the legislature stepping in because, of course, you know, trans folks are involved in the judicial system in every way, including as um, defendants. And so I think um, we might regret at some point encouraging the legislature to step in and require certain kinds of jury instructions um, in certain kinds of cases. And I would much prefer to see the judicial system um, just find its way out of this, the way that many, many courts have found uh, their way out of, um, you know, considering infidelity to be sufficient provocation. I think the courts can do this. I think they can find their way out of transpanic defenses uh, without the legislature. Victoria. 
Victoria, could you be more specific about the dangers of uh, using legislation? What what could happen in terms of, um, uh, you know, what, what's the downside here? Sure. Well, um, in a typical case, uh, what would happen with jury instructions is that each side of the case would ask the judge to state the law in a certain way to the jury. So outside of the jury's presence, each lawyer would say, uh, we think that you, that you should state the law in these words. And then the judge chooses um, based on his or her understanding of the law as it is. So what I would worry about is, um, let's say in an immigration case where um, where someone is being accused of violating immigration laws and they're in a criminal trial, I would be nervous about the legislature in California having come up with a jury instruction that could automatically be given in a particular case. So mm-hmm. if the legislature just decided that the, the judge should say in every immigration case, um, you know, that it is illegal to enter the U.S. in, in such and such a way, um, I, I, would be, I would be nervous in terms of defendants' rights about the legislature, which doesn't look at cases on a case-by-case basis. I think judges are in a particularly good position to decide what instructions are um, should be given in, in any case. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense because it, they could really work to prejudice the, the jury then. Exactly. By, by your example. One of the things that I found compelling about your, your article is you talked about the defendants making the argument that they, you know, it, it, they felt it was fraud, they felt that they were deceived, they felt that, uh, you know, something had, had happened to them because of uh, finding out that uh, Gwen Araujo had male genitals. And uh, the argument that you talk about is that nothing really happened to them. They provoked themselves. It was all happening inside of them. And to blame Gwen Araujo for for their provocation was, was very misguided. Absolutely. Um, not only was it misguided, but I think that... Um it doesn't comport with what you need to prove for a heat of passion defense. That's right. Heat of passion defense, legally to operate, um, the victim must have done something. There must be an act to which um, the perpetrator reacts. And here, uh, you know, I, I read over and over the, the um, defense attorney's um, story of what happened here, and I could find no act whatsoever Um you know, as one as one um, scholar put it, Gwen Araujo was simply being herself. Right. And if we open the door to allowing panic defenses based on someone's characteristics, we're allowing for violent reactions to anything about another person that we don't uh, feel comfortable with. But Victoria, like. Victoria, yes. if she has, if the trans person has sex with someone, that's an act. Just like if if someone cheats on their spouse. They're both acts. They're both acts of having sex, and in one ca- and in both cases, someone is very much put off by that act. Sure, and it's not. Um, I would say there's a critical difference because in the Gwen Araujo case, there was no claim that the sex itself um, was unwanted or was um, shocking in any way, or that anything was revealed. Rather, the um, Basically, the way they framed it is that their own, the defendant's own sexuality was put 
into question. Right. In fact, one of them, as they as they killed her, um, was yelling, "I can't be gay! I can't be gay!" So, so in that case, but sure, they they, they uh, it didn't come out of the sex. But what, for example, in uh, in the Boston area, William Palmer was convicted of strang of. Uh, assault and battery on Chanel Pickett, who he in fact strangled to death in his bedroom. His defense was a similar kind of panic. He didn't realize that, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, she was a he. Yeah. And in this case, he had brought her home to have sex with him. So or that she had male genitals. Or that she had male genitals. So in this case, would not, um, couldn't she be found to have done something in terms of going home with him? Um, I mean, I would say no. I would say that um, their sex was consensual. And if we are, um, what the, what a heat of passion claim asks is, is it reasonable? Would a reasonable person react violently to, um, in this case, I would say learning something about your sexual partner, not about having sex, but learning something not just about your sexual partner, but maybe about yourself, maybe about the kind of person you're attracted to which is, I think, what these young men in the Gwen Arrojo case said okay. very explicitly. Um, we were shocked to learn that we could have done this, that our boundaries, basically, had been stretched or crossed. And so they're, they're learning something about what she is, not about that she had sex with somebody else. Exactly. But they're learning about yes. her body. Okay. About her body and about themselves. And I think that and as their reactions. Society, Right. Yeah. And I think we're very nervous about those boundaries. And so we Absolutely. have entertained this defense. And I think it's time to really look closely at, at that. Victoria, can I ask your opinion then on, on the, legi- the legislative question? You said that uh, you think that we should stay away from jury instructions, legislating jury instructions. Is there legislation that is good and helpful with respect to the trans panic defense? Well, um, this is, do you mean is there legislation out there or is there legislation we could? could I'm thinking towards those activists who are working uh, to create and sponsor and uh, get past legislation, new legislation. Sure. I, you know, I really support wholeheartedly the part of this particular bill, which I believe is on the governor's desk already in California. Um, I really support the piece about funding education. I would you know, if it were up to me, I would put all of our resources toward educating our institutions, including the judiciary, um, trainings, uh, having people come in and talk about um, the issues that, that judges are likely to see, that lawyers are likely to see, educating our bar associations yep. um, about trans issues. I, you know, were it up to me, I would um, put our resources there. I think that legislating the strategies and the words used in a trial becomes tricky because we really we have to we have to care about um, both defendants and plaintiffs in any given case uh, because you know people we care about find themselves on both sides of of the V as they say so that's um, true and strategy really belongs in the courtroom not in the legislature because as soon as the legislature takes a strategic step the prosecutors and defense attorneys are going to take a different step, and now you're going to be faced with having to pass a different law that's going to take you years to pass. And exactly. So you can't possibly keep up with the attorneys who can change their strategy tomorrow. Right, exactly. And I, through this article, what I, what I hope to show people is that we don't, um, fortunately in a way, we don't need to pass new laws um, to protect against the transpanic defense because were judges keeping uh, defense attorneys to the elements of existing heat of passion 
um, claims, as they should be, and as they do in other contexts, none of them would make it to the jury. So we're not even asking for for a change, um, in my view. We're asking for the judges to look carefully at the law, to hold the defense attorneys to the... um, to the claim, to the elements that they're charged with proving up, and if they don't prove it up, it shouldn't. It should make it to the jury. Wonderful. And one one of the things that that I see um, in looking at the Gwenarahu case is oftentimes in the media you see transgender people put on trial, and you see a lot of the stories really reinforcing the trans panic uh, defense, and. Um, I know that in the Gwenarahu case, there was a lot of education that went on around the media and, and otherwise. But at the same time, uh, we had, are you familiar with the Robolis case? I'm not. Uh, um, Robolis was stabbed to death with a scissors in 2004, mm-hmm. and they used, in California, and they used the transpanic defense successfully to give like a, a three year sentence. Oh, I did read about that. Yeah. yeah. For manslaughter, and then oh. I think a year for uh, killing Robolis with scissors. Right. So uh, it, there, there's so much inconsistency right now, I think, in terms of we feel like we're kind of moving ahead, but then we kind of take uh, a few steps back. And you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, think that, um, I think that with greater education, I mean, I keep, you know, beating on the same drum, but I think that sure. as, um, as we educate our judges and as we educate our lawyers, about what the law already is. I think the law provides a very stable standard, um, and if we could apply it equally to every case, I think that we would be making real progress. I think all of these cases where you see the punishment um, just completely disproportionate to the crime, something has gone wrong institutionally. It's not just a matter of uh, a particular judge's bias. We're not, we're not holding defense attorneys to the law. Okay, that ma- makes That's a right. lot of sense. Victoria, is there some place uh, online where people can find your paper and read your paper? Sure. Um, I would say that in the um, on the Wikipedia Gwenarajo, um entry, my, my article is there. It's also under the Boston College Law School Third World Law Journal, um, and you can Google that or go to the BC Law School website. Okay, and, and actually I'm going to... Um, I'm going to do that homework, and I'm going to put a link directly to your article from our webpage uh, with this program. People so. should feel free to um, to email me with um, questions or ideas. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the, the work that you're doing. Uh, Victoria, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Unfortunately, we're out of uh, time, but if there's anything you haven't said... Yeah, any points you wanted to make that you didn't get to? No, I would just say thank you so much for having me on the show. I've had such a good time. And thanks for doing oh. this hard work of, of having this radio show. It's wonderful. Oh, thank oh. you, Victoria. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your work very much. Yeah, very much. Take good care, and and, uh, th- and thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Wow. She was terrific. Absolutely terrific. It's amazing. Yeah. That's it's really, really nice good. to have that input, too, because the trans-panic defense is something that's very much on our tongues these days, um, on the tips of our tongues as uh, trans activists. And so having some clear thinking about what's the best way to handle this is really good. I mean, ever since 1997, when... Uh, 
when uh, William Palmer got away with Chanel assault Pickett. and battery in the Chanel Pickett murder. Of course, it's been a real uh, hot button for me, although um, I can't say that I've taken in any um, positive steps to do anything about it, but here we have somebody who's giving us a very clear path we can take on this. Well, I think we are moving from sensationalism toward education in the yeah. media and in the in the legal system. It doesn't mean it's always perfect and that we don't have a lot of things to work on and that, that certainly prejudice doesn't rear its head everywhere, or discrimination and hate, but I think that we are we are moving along. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Well, speaking of great, we have some great announcements coming up. Um, so let's see. Here's what's going on for the next week. It's the Gender Talk web calendar, the community event calendar. Let's see. Monday night, and what's the date on this? Monday night. Uh, no, Tuesday night, September 5th, 2006. Sorry. Oh, yeah. This is why I'm confused. It's called Monday night in Westerbork on Tuesday night. September 5th here in Boston at the Boston Playwrights Theater. It's a difficult, surprisingly funny, often complex, and ultimately joyous piece set along the plot lines of the theater group at concentration camp Westerbork. Monday Night in Westerbork finds Bergman, uh, S. Bear Bergman, who's the writer and performer. Uh, Monday Night in Westerbork finds Bergman solidly in here storytelling element, investigating points at intersection and impact among identity, art, persecution, and resistance. Not your traditional Holocaust narrative, but an educating, interrogating, celebrating piece of theater, including everything from a song and dance number to a prayer for the dead. Uh, S. Bear Bergman was a winner of the 2004 Best of the Festival Award at the National Gay and Lesbian Theater Festival. Um, so uh, this is a playwright and performer with some chops, uh, and this is Bergman's third internationally touring theater piece. Um, so check it out. Um, there's a sliding scale for tickets, so no one will be turned away for lack of funds. For more information or to reserve... Email preview at sbearbergman, S-B-A-I-R-B-E-R-G-M-A-N dot com. And please include your full name for the ticket list. And what else is going on? There's going to be a radical queer meeting here in Cambridge. It's a safe space for individuals to be open about their identity, to meet others, and to empower ourselves through performance, discussion, and organizing. One com- And ourselves is them, uh, folks writing this. One component of the space will be an open mic, a chance for individuals to empower, the- empower themselves as well as to connect them to all through the sharing of uh, personal experiences. People can play music, read prose or poetry, screen films, rant and rave, show artwork, anything. Again, this is all, or for the first time I should say, this is happening tomorrow night, Sunday, September 3rd, 7 p.m. at 45 Mont Auburn Street in Cambridge, also known as the Zine Library, Democracy Center, Harvard Social Forum, etc. And coming up in Louisville, Kentucky next month, uh, we're going to talk about some conferences now. There's a conference whose purpose is to uplift African-American trans people, challenge the negative stereotypes about them, and build a unified AA trans community. It's called the Trans Sisters Trans Brothers Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, Wednesday, October 18th through Sunday, October 22nd. For more information, go to transfamilydefyinggravity.net. That's transfamilydefyinggravity.net. Okay, Trans Sisters Trans Brothers Conference, October 18th through the 22nd. Also coming up uh, about the same time, the 15th through the 22nd in October, is the Fantasia Fair, the longest-running transgender event. Chance to hang out for a week in a beautiful seaside town with lots of other trannies and GLBT folks. Learn things, have fun, and make friends. For more information, FantasiaFair.org is the place to go. 
This all happens in Provincetown again, October 15th, Sunday, October 15th through Sunday, October 22nd. And coming up in Worcester, Friday, October 27th through the 29th, Transcending Boundaries. Uh, this is our own little, our, I shouldn't say little, it's our own, um, it's a joint conference. All I have here on the calendar is transcendingboundaries.org, but I know it's a joint conference between PFLAG um, and local GLBT folks. So check it out, transcendingboundaries.org, and we'll try and get more for you on that in the near future. Coming up um, this next Thursday here in Cambridge, there's a video documentary, Arna's Children, Thursday, September 7th, 6.45 p.m. at Central Square Public Library. will be produced and directed by Giuliano Mera. Arna Mera's son, Arna Mera, was a Jewish woman who fought in the 1948 war. She dedicated her life to helping Palestinian refugees after the 1967 war. She established a children's theater in the West Bank city, city of Janine during the 80s. Um, and it goes on to tell her story. Again, video documentary, Arna's Children, Thursday, September 7th, Central Square Public Library, 6.45 p.m. That's 45 Pearl Street in Cambridge. And finally, there's an activism opportunity coming up in Los Angeles, a Right to Serve campaign, Tuesday, September 26th, college and high school students, church members, LGBT organization members, previously discharged service members, and activists alike will visit a military recruitment center located in Hollywood, California, to protest the don't ask, don't tell policy of the United States military. I can't imagine why anybody would want to get into the military right now, but uh, certainly protesting the policy is an interesting thing to do. For more information, go to righttoserve.org. That's righttoserve.org. Everyone is welcome to get your uh, event announced on Gender Talk. Just put it on our Gender Talk calendar. And to, for more information about this event and other events, other GLBT-related events, go to gendertalk.com, click on Calendar, and it's all right there for you. And speaking of getting it all right there, it's all right time for our next guest, Gordine. certainly is. Wait a second. Sorry. Oops, try now. Was I in the silent space? I had, <laughs> I, I had relegated you to a quiet corner of the studio. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was in a quiet <laughs> corner of the mixer. Okay. Don't, don't worry. You're back now. Oh, and, I've got and, my sound, and, huh? Oh, and we lost our guest. We lost our guest. And that's my fault because I didn't put them on the board right away. They probably she probably said, "Oh, okay, what I will go get her back." Would you do that? Uh, so sorry, Miss Chile. I'm sure that that was my mistake here on the board. Uh, let's see. I did have some other events I could talk about, um, except I just uh, I just sent my events into La La Land, so they're gone. Um, what else can I tell you about? No, I don't know. I'm going to go back to our calendar because there's more stuff there that I could talk about. Uh, I have clicked on calendar. It's so easy. You know, you go to the Gender Talk website, there's this red bar across the page that has uh, things like home and about and uh, resources. We have great resources on the Gender Talk website. This is all at gendertalk.com, by the way. Should have been .org because we are indeed a nonprofit. Oh, somebody has spammed our calendar. Somebody keeps spamming our calendar. I'm going to have to do something about it. I'm going to make that more difficult very soon, I promise I promise you. Um, coming up, oh, here's something that's happening in October at Purdue University. Very interesting. Helen Boyd's going to be there um, at the center on Friday, October 27th, 1 to 3 p.m. She's going to talk about trans identities and cultural politics. She's the author of My Husband, Betty. And the upcoming, She's Not the Man I Married. Oh, so Helen Boyd has another book coming out. She'll speak about how the struggles of trans people focus on new and useful lens on both the issues of gender equality and marriage equality. 
and Gordine is back. I believe we have our guest on the phone, and Gordine, that was quick. That's right. I, I traveled through wormholes through through time and space, through <laughs> hyperspace to get here. She really. went back I, in I, time. I tunneled, I tunneled through, Nancy. Awesome job. <laughs> okay. How about introducing our guest then? Uh, we have uh, rejoining us on Gender Talk, Mara Kiesling. And uh, Mara, as you know, is a longtime transgender activist. She's also the executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality. And what some of you don't know is... Uh, We've actually seen her do some very funny comedy as well. Oh, that's right. She does (laughs) stand-up, which we thoroughly enjoy. Mara, welcome to Gender Talk. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Gordine. How are you? Doing good. How are you doing? Wonderful. Oh, great. Great. Well, you know, see, that's what it is. It's it's coming together on Gender Talk makes us all feel great. I think that's true. Plus, I have a puppy. You have a puppy? I I just adopted a puppy. You did? What kind of puppy did you adopt? A dog. A dog puppy. Cool. Mara, this is Raven. I want to hear all about your new little dog friend. <laughs> She's a Shih Tzu. Aww. And her name is Puffington. Puffington? Yep. <laughs> That's a fabulous name. Thank you, Raven. Oh, how very Congratulations. Sweet. Uh, Thank you much. How old is Puffington? Uh, She's now about 14 weeks. Is she listening? Uh, she is. Oh, Hi, Puffington. She speaking noise. That's more likely her squeaky toy and not her. Oh, okay, oh, that's great. <laughs> well, and, and it's okay to to hear uh, any any dog uh, contributions in the background. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. So, are you bonding? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, great. She's really smart. It, it, it's remarkable how much she knows at her age already. She knows sit and fetch, and oh. she definitely knows treat. Treat. <laughs> and, That's and an easy one. Knows. And I have a little bag that I carry her in when we go to the dog park because it takes her too long to walk because her legs are only, you know, a couple inches tall. Ah. And I say bag, and she runs across the room and jumps in the bag. No oh, kidding. that's too great. How sweet. Well, Nancy's taken uh, to taking out uh, two of our cats for walks around the house. She carries them uh, into the backyard, and they get very thrilled about it. Uh, going for their walks. Those kitty, the kitties and animals are fun. We should uh, we should really talk about gender stuff, though, since our time is limited. Sure. <laughs> Although, Although this animals is fun. are very important, too. Yeah, they certainly <laughs> are. And an important part of all of our lives. Absolutely, Gordy. (laughs) Thank you, Mara. So what is this about the end of stealth as we know it, Mara? Is it really happening? Oh, I really do think it is, and and I know that's very troubling for a lot of people, not just theoretically, but for a lot of people very, very personally worrying. Um, what, What we see happening is so many degradations of, of privacy laws. Um, a lot of them we're bringing upon ourselves, but a lot of them are things we can't help. Um, it is going to be, um, you know, very soon it's going to be impossible to really be totally stealth and not worry about getting outed. So what what are you thinking people can do or what should people do uh, are there are there any measures that people can take? Or is it this sounds like people need to come yeah. out <laughs> if they're going to be outed. Is this, yeah, can well, this be, I, I, can I this be stopped? Right. The most important thing is a um, you know if you can come out, 
safely come out. And if you don't feel that you can, have a plan ready in case you do get outed. Um, We're getting calls now all the time at the National Center for Transgender Equality from people who have been stealthed for, you know, a year or 25 years. And suddenly out of nowhere, um, sometimes because of a a trigger incident, but but not always. Can you give um, us an example? um, Sure. I I mean, I, I guess one of the most common examples we we've all heard is is christy lee littleton who was you know living in stealth after after years and after seven years of marriage i I believe it was seven years and her husband was um uh the victim of a malpractice incident um she was suing and in the um oh what's it called when the lawyers oh the deposition Lawyers in depositions standardly ask witnesses, um, have you ever used another name? And she was in the position of having to say yes and giving them the name she used when she had, you know, before she had transitioned, or lying under oath. Um, we've had, we, we got a call recently from a woman who was applying for a promotion at the same defense contractor she had worked at before, and the new promotion required a higher security clearance and they managed to uncover oh and she had transitioned sometime in the early 70s when she was 13 or 14 mm. um they managed wow. to uncover her her thing she uh, had transitioned um, at 13 or 14 and they uncovered that yeah and that was was that an issue um I mean, well what? she was out at work and and that can be an issue for lots of reasons of course it oh. can. And, and you know even if it doesn't cause an adverse job action it's still none of anybody's business. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and but what it's what, what's happening also is sometimes when people get outed at work, even if they're not directly fired for being trans, then they might get fired for lying on their initial application, for leaving some information out, or for and and I say lying in a very deliberate way. You know, it's not always lying, but it's sometimes arguable from the point of view of the employer that it was mine and if you're not and if they're not fired for that they will certainly be subjected to a a very low glass ceiling um very potentially likely yeah oh well i i've certainly experienced the transgender glass ceiling which is basically imposed at such a level that um it it, it's just clearing your head where your head wherever you are it's like you are not going up Mm -hmm. that's very clear yeah. Well, you know, and then there's also the the problem of really punitive things around the bathroom that can can begin to happen, and also fellow employees yeah. uh, treating you differently. And we hope that that's not the case. I mean, but we do know that that certainly it happens all the time. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it subjects you to um, insurance discrimination. Sure. Um, it, it can decrease your access to medical care. And again, it's nobody's business. And while I, you know, I happen to believe anybody who can be out should be out, you know, I also really believe that, that those of us who are activists are in it so that people can have better lives. And for some people, that does mean trying to be stealth. Um, but, well, but realistically, that's, that's becoming harder and harder. Yeah, in a world where being transgender means you're going to be discriminated against, being stealth is justifiable. And yeah. it, it, it's just the way it is, and and yes, we as activists choose not to be out, but 
I agree with you completely. We choose to do it so that people can live without discrimination, which right now means living stealth. So is there any way to beat this back? Can Do we have any chance, any hope of doing anything about this, or is this inevitable that, that being stealth is going to become um, much more difficult, much less likely? Well, you know, the, the, the real... The real problem here, the bigger problem, is that Americans, and probably people in other countries too, believe that all of these little things that the government and the business and that we ourselves are doing about privacy really doesn't matter. You know, one of the most remarkable things to me was when we heard about the government monitoring phone calls. And Americans, by wide majorities, were saying things like, well, you know, the government's you know, uh, if you don't do anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. What that yep. means, what you're saying is the government has a right to have your phone records. That's right. And, yep. and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, not to express any sympathy whatsoever um, for, for John Carr in terms of what he, he has done to, to children and, and, and what he claimed to have done to John Benet Ramsey. But, you know, he was out of this transgender because people were sniffing around at his hotel, and the hotel clerk gave him the phone records. And they called all the numbers that he had called, and one was to a place that did laser hair removal, and, you know, some calls were to a, a, a SRS clinic. Um, and he was outed because his phone records were not secure. And we now know that American phone records are not secure. Yeah. And people should be really worried about that, not just because of being out of this trans, because it's none of the government's business and it's none of anybody's business. But if we say, well, you know, it's they're only after the bad guys and not after me, um, we're saying it's okay for them to have our records. As if they were catching the bad guys that way. That's well, right. that's... You yeah. Know, I mean, there's the other the point, point is, that, that, is that they're not using it to catch the bad guys. That's they, right. You know? And, you know, all this nonsense at airports now... Um, none of it, none of it is really catching terrorists. Oh, you know, exactly. We're not to, you know, have baby formula. Yeah. I mean, baby formula is about the only thing you can have on a plane now. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't recall a single case of them stopping a terrorist. Did the shoe bomber, did they stop him? No, he was on the plane yeah. when they got him. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, okay, so um, what can people do, people who are stealth, Let's say let's say you're a trans person and maybe you're out. To, you know you've got your family still and maybe you're, um, you know you're out to some people but you're stealth at work, which is a, a very reasonable thing to do. Um, and let's say what can you do to prepare to be outed? Well, I mean the most important thing is you can prepare yourself emotionally for it. You know, if it happens, you know, it happens, and, and be ready for that. But but know who your allies are in the company. Know what your rights are where you live. Um, if what, you live in a place where it's illegal to discriminate, yeah. you know, know that and be ready with that. Um, and, and, and keep a paper trail of all of the awards you win, um, of all of the commendations and all of your reviews, so that, um, you know, if you're, you get outed and you're, Performance reviews miraculously suddenly tank on you. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be very. Uh, oh clear. come on, that would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be very clear to the human relations commissions or human rights commissions and and the attorneys and the judges that it had to do with you being outed. Um, but but other things you can do, 
be very careful with your personal information. One of the things that's going on now that the trans people are not being careful of is almost any trans person is is willing to do almost any interview with any any newspaper. People are willing to put put list you know put their names on listservs. Um, once you are in cyberspace now and you are Googleable, you are probably you can get Googled for life. Um, you we can know, get Googled for life. That sounds somewhat scary. Right, um, and we know. I mean, the the three of us know a a police officer who moved from the south up to the northeast and got Googled and lost his job. That's right. Uh, yes. Um, and and if you know your little hometown newspaper wants to do a story about your transition, and you think it's really cool that you get to be in the newspaper, remember that you are now in the newspaper for life. Yeah, that's basic. That's basic stuff. But this this identity s- stuff that's happening now, the Real ID Act, is really that means even if you even if you've done all the right stuff to be stealth, you still may be outed at any moment. You could just you know it's just uh, um, not. I understand that um, people that the Social Security Administration has been sending letters to people's employers. Yeah, whenever they they have a, a new system set up, which was not meant to hurt trans people, it was meant to hurt immigrants, which is a, another pretty despicable moral thing going <laughs> oh, on. Oh, good, let's hurt immigrants. Yeah, yeah don't even get me started on that. But in order to hurt immigrants, they've set up this incredibly error-filled thing called an employment verification system, where employers send in name, birthday, and social security number of their employees and it's matched against the social security database the problem comes in that the the procedures allow for the employers to optionally list gender and if they do that and the gender does not match so if the gender the employer has does not match the gender the social security administration has they send a letter to the employer saying uh, we have a no match here you think nancy nangeroni is a woman but we think she's a man hey Okay. They'll actually send that out? Oh, yeah. On yeah, what basis? Heard. On the basis of that's what Congress told them to do. The record oh. discrepancy. Right. What we've been doing is arguing that they they need to stop allowing gender even as an optional category. That's right. Uh, because yeah, that's it's good. optional, they don't need it, so why are they asking? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but our bigger argument is that because Social Security Administration now requires... Um, proof of surgery to change gender, they're saying that gender is a medical condition. Therefore, they have no right to be sending personal medical information to employers, and employers have no med- no um, right to be sending personal medical uh-huh. information to the government. Um, and so that's the argument we're trying to make. Um, Who are you making that with? Um, we've just submitted comments to the Department of Homeland Security um, they're they're revising the policy, making it worse, of course. Of course. Um, uh, but fortunately, I mean, fortunately, I mean, but of course, um, it won't do anything extra to help fight terrorism. It will, you know, screw some more immigrants and really hurt some trans people. But um, so that's nice. Um, mm. But so we've submitted comments to them, trying to get them to remove gender. Um, they don't require it, so therefore they they can't claim they need it. Um, they require a surgery letter, so therefore it is medical information. Yeah. 
and and it's just it's just very bad policy. So we've submitted comments to them, and we've been working with some members of Congress about that as well. That's a great thing to be working on, Mara. Glad you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big one. That's that that's very big, and and the impact that that can have on people's lives is oh, tremendous. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if if you are stealth any in any way, that you better be prepared for a revelation to come, and that that you better not. Um, make your whole survival strategy count on being stealth. You know, this reminds me of the McCarthy witch hunt in the uh, 50s. Beyond the Red Scare, we know that uh, thousands and thousands of gays and lesbians and certainly transgender people, too, were ferreted out of their government positions. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. It was a huge Scary. witch hunt. Mar- and, you know, we, we don't think it's been done intentionally now to hurt trans people. It certainly didn't be done, being done carelessly. Um, but it is hurting trans people. Of people are losing their jobs and their homes and their families, and, and we have to get that stopped. And that's huge. Yeah, that's Absolutely. important. All right, Mara, anything else you want to say before we uh, say goodbye? Um, no, but, but, you know, everybody stay safe out there. And, and just watch your personal information. Don't, you know, when you get a new doctor, don't let the doctor have your Social Security number. You know, they don't need it. Good point. You know, just be careful of what you, what you give out. Um, and be careful of what you say when you answer the questions. Uh, think carefully about whether or not you're setting yourself up to be accused of lying. Um, and it's not a cut-and-dry thing. You're just going to have to take it case by case. And, um, and feel free to contact us if you have questions. And that's ncte.org? nctequality.org. Excuse me. That's right. NCT, <laughs> and the email would be what? Info at nctequality? That's correct. Info at nctequality.org. Mara Kiesling, Director, thank you so much for being on our program tonight. Thanks for having me so much. See you Appreciate guys later. Take thanks care. for the work that you're doing. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay. Whoa, NCT. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, she's doing good work. nctequality.org. Uh, it's a good website. It's a good organization, and Mara's doing some good work there. And we certainly owe all of her a debt of gratitude. Um, speaking of debt of gratitude, I think we need to send one out to everybody because that does it for our show tonight. Uh, coming up next is DJ Jamez with The Choice is Yours. So don't go away. He's going to be right up. So just light up those phones, but not for two minutes. Uh, in the meantime, check out our website, gendertalk.com, where you can visit our calendar, our resources pages. Um, there's articles there. There's all kinds of stuff, as well as over 400 programs for you to listen to. That does it for our program tonight. We hope you've enjoyed our show as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. On behalf of Hal Fuller, Gordine, Raving, Raven, and myself, Nancy Nangeroni, thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next Saturday evening at 8 p.m. right here on WMBR in Cambridge. In the meantime, remember, no matter what the occasion, gender talk is always appropriate. (laughs) You were going to go right there. I I was just going (laughs) to roll right over it. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 